So I had an epiphany the other day. Maybe maybe epiphany is too strong of a word, but that's the word that I chose to use with when I shared this thought with somebody who's been a lifelong confident friend, sounding board, political adversary. <laughs> like what we we talk often and we talk politics a lot and life too. We're we've been friends for a very long time. So this is what I, in, is, in essence, I type to her. While I'm screaming at the top of my lungs that we need a third party to arise, I mean, either fourth or fifth would be great, but I'm not greedy. Third, just a third party would be fabulous. The media is basically sending out two possible scenarios. One is that the GOP is fractured and done and Trump has ruined it. And the other is, we don't need any stinking parties. And th this, this has me a little concerned for a lot of reasons. But before I get too deep into that, I think that I should define a few quick um, terms that I may use during while I'm speaking that I haven't done before. So I'm doing this to make sure that when I say a word, you and I understand what I'm thinking because, you know, perception is everything. So there's a few words that are, are kind of, in my opinion, interchanged. And the first is a supporter, a political supporter, a Trump supporter, a Biden supporter, a, or, you know, a, a proposition supporter or, you know, if you hear the word supporter, in my brain, what I'm thinking is time, treasure, or talent. Somebody who's on the front lines volunteering, doing the door-to-door -door canvas, or on the phone banks. I've done both for local folks. Or are going to, you know, say fundraisers and donating money. These are supporters. These are people who are actually investing in the person that they believe is a good candidate or like the bill that is correct or the proposition or whatever. Anybody who is willing to invest their time, treasure, or talents is a supporter. In my brain, that's how it works. Versus, say, a constituent who is a person who lives within the bounds of the area that the elected official is supposed to be actually representing. This includes kids and seniors that are you know, or t that may or may not any longer have the capabilities to interact with the political system or convicted felons who haven't asked for their civil rights back. It, it, all these people are constituents, people who don't vote, never will vote, still constituents. So just the constituency of a politician, an elected official, is the people that they are representing. And then we have the voter, which I generally associate with the person who actually votes. But apparently the actual definition includes all the people who are legally able to vote or legally allowed to vote or, you know, all, all the people within that constituency who could vote are labeled as voters. Whether they are registered or not, whether they have voted or not, does not matter. They can be defined as a voter. Just, I wanna be clear, 
if I'm talking about voters, I'm talking about, I'm going to try and make sure I'm talking about the people who actually go out and speak their, their decision within the bounds of our voting system. But the media might use that term a little more broadly, just so you know. And so much so, it's, I, I was reading this article and I, I couldn't figure out if it was a Yale News article. It's called The Polarization in U.S. Politics Starts with Weak Political Parties. It's by Mike Cummings and it was written in, uh, in November uh, 17th of 2020. But at one point he talks about fringe voters and he asks why they have so much or somebody asks why they have so much uh, influence. And this is what the article says. And I think he's, I think at the end of this, he's, he's got a paper or a book. Uh, it looks like he's got a book. But this is what he says about fringe voters. And it really caught my attention, I have to say. It's due to the role of primaries at the presidential level. Oh, sorry. It says, why do voters on the fringes have such influence? Back to the question. It's due to the role of primaries at the presidential level and the interaction of primary of primaries and safe seats in Congress. This is a term that's talked about later on in the article. I, primaries are not new. We've had them since progress, the progressive era. The basic problem with them today is that they are usually marked by very low turnout and the people on the fringes of the parties vote disproportionately in them. The same is true of caucuses. Donald Trump was elect, uh, was selected as the Republican president candidate in 2016 by less than 5% of the U.S. electorate. He goes on to talk about how this affects Congress and that when the Tea Party took over back in 2019, they had low turnout to like 12 to 15%. And then when uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who is is labeled as a leading voice of the left of the party's left wing. Uh, guess won her primary against uh, the incumbent with eleven percent of the turnout. But it doesn't say voter turnout; it just says turnout, which I found interesting, uh, and is why that caught my attention. Because when I was thinking, when I was looking up voter, this article came up, and yet in that particular aspect, he wasn't really talking about voter turnout. So that was interesting. I got to stop saying interesting. Please call me on it. So when I start searching, I sometimes come across stuff that doesn't necessarily exactly fit in with what I'm talking about or where my mindset is. But I did find this glossary of election uh, policy terms. And um, in this glossary, it talks about it, it mostly was dealing with uh, different kinds of what different terms in in, in the voting uh, election policy could be. So that I'm going to include this because I thought that was pretty cool because there was quite a few things. Like there's a ballot exhaustion. A ballot exhaustion occurs when a ballot can no longer be included in a final tally because all of the candidates chosen on the ballot are no longer in the contest. I have never heard of this. I'm sure it doesn't happen very often, but... It covers a lot of the definitions of things that you might hear in the media. As I started thinking about the two-party system and wondering about how 
we got to this point. I wanted to know how we started. So I looked up or the framers of the Constitution were thinking. And I uh, found there's a history.com, you know, founding fathers, political parties. It says founding fathers feared political factions would tear the nation apart. And it says, today it seems impossible to imagine, this is how, today it seems impossible to imagine the U.S. government without its two leading parties, Democrats and Republicans. But in 1787, when delegates to the Constitutional Convention gathered in Philadelphia to hash out the foundation of their new government, they entirely omitted political parties from the new nation's founding documents. This was no accident. The framers of the new constitution desperately wanted to avoid the division that had ripped England apart in the bloody civil wars of the 17th century. Many of them saw parties, or factions as they called them, as corrupt relics of the monarchical British system that they wanted to discard in favor of a truly democratic government. Well, we know that we don't really have a democratic government. If you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know that we have a, a republic, a representative republic. Some people call it a representative democracy, but technically we are the republic. And then I found another article by this uh, man named Lee Drutman. Uh, the article is called America is Now the Divided Republic, the Framers Feared, which I thought was like, all right. And he talks about, right out the gate, he says, George Washington's farewell address is often remembered for its warning against hyper-partisanship. Quote, unquote, the alternative domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetuated the most horrid enormities is itself a frightening despotism. John Adams, Washington's successor, similarly worried, John Adams and Washington were not friends, by the way, a division of the Republic into two great parties is to be dreaded as the great political evil. So we'll come back to this article a little bit later, but I thought that was a good, like, kind of, thinking about what the mind frame was. Because there's no language in the Constitution that talks about parties or guarantees them or indicates how they should work. This is a fabrication of our own doing. It's definitely not anything that was planned by the framers of the Constitution. So now I'm wondering, are there countries that only have, that have no parties that just don't have political parties? Is that something that even exists? Because I honestly had not thought about this before. So I look it up and I find a list on Wikipedia. Countries without political political parties. There are seven monarchies. Um, there is one that isn't listed as a monarchy, but it says uh, Kuwait. says political parties don't exist. Candidates must all be independent. Uh, there are three republics that apparently also uh, only have uh, have no parties. And then the thing that, you know, kind of caught my attention was that there are territories in Canada, 
the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and even the United States that don't have political parties. Apparently, Nebraska, the Nebraska legislator, is nonpartisan. They don't recognize political parties for the entire state. That's, I found, a little bit interesting. So, then I wonder, how many countries have only one political party? Because, you know, what if the GOP does dissolve? What kind of countries would that look like? The two front runners were China and Cuba. And, but it, when I looked it up, like on Wikipedia, but then I found this list of political parties in all the countries that I could possibly imagine. Uh, and there are several. Argentina has one. Bulgaria, Cambodia. China actually indicates it has two parties. One is the Chinese Communist Party and the other one is the Nationalist Party. I'm under the impression the Nationalist Party is not... Um, it, it's my impression is they don't get to have much power or say over anything. Cuba, of course, has the communi Communist Party of Cuba. Egypt apparently only has one party. El, Salva El Salvador only has one. Uh, we go down. Iraq only apparently has one political party. Uh, Kenya, North Korea, Lebanon, Morocco, Mozambique, Nepal, Nigeria, Pakistan, Romania, Scotland. Isn't, aren't they part of the UK? I, well, they have the Scottish National Party anyways. Um, Sri Lanka, Sweden. The only party that they have listed is the Moderate Party. That's interesting. Uh, Switzerland has four parties, by the way, for as Switzerland as they are. And the thing, as I'm scrolling down, the thing that was really kind of a standout was that the United States had so many parties they didn't they did barely fit on one screen full at full page on my you know kind of normal I don't know what size computer screen I have but we have a plethora of parties in this country uh, American Labor Party the Moose the Bull Moose Party, the Communist Party of the United States of America, Constitutional Union Party, the Democratic Party, the Democratic slash Republic, Republican Party, the Dexicrat Party, the Farmer slash uh, Dash Labor Party. Like, it, it goes on and on and on, all the way down to the Working Man's Party. We have multiple, uh, some of them are no longer part of, or they were only around for, like, there's the Progressive Party of, uh, 1924 and the Progressive Party of 1948. I, I did not look, I did not click any of these links, but I found this to be, oh, and they also have the Republican Party, which is from 1790 to 1820, and then the Republican Party from 1854 on, which, you know, the, the big switch, I believe, is what that might, and then Vietnam also only has one party. But for our country to have the most amount of political parties listed for any country in the world and to only have two of them that are really actually representative and really have any actual power speaks volumes to the differences in political ideology and 
the, the thinking that people have. I do not believe that we have just two types of thinkers in this country. I do not believe that either you are liberal or you're conservative. I think that most people live somewhere on the spectrum. I certainly do. I have some very liberal thinking ideas and core values that I will not give up about personal um, freedoms and about your own rights to your body and who you are and your rights to feel comfortable being who you are out in the world. I'm very liberal on these aspects. I tend to be a little more conservative when it comes to like money because I've, I've worked my entire life since I was 13. So, you know, the tax thing, you know, like I, I know, I know how much money I, I've given up to this government over the years and maybe it's not a whole heck of a lot, but it feels like a pretty big number when you add it all together. Just saying. So here's my issue with the two party system. I've got a few things. The first thing is that how can you really have checks and balances in a two-party system? How can there really be accountability? If it, so, as I talked about before, that Lee Drutman, that the, the, he wrote a book also called the, uh, "Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop." Sounds very you know fun Sunday read. Um, I have not read this book yet, so but. I saw multiple articles, interviews, uh, people talking about his book. Like, he says something that I found to be compelling. He says the consequences. The consequence is that today America has a genuine two-party system with no overlap. The development the framers feared most, and it shows no sign of resolving. The two parties are fully sorted by fee and cultural values and absent a major realignment. Neither side has a chance of becoming the dominant party in the near future. But the elusive permanent majority promises so much power, neither side is willing to give it up. And he talks a little bit above about the, the uh, dominant party and how that was something that was also feared by the framers. It's a great article. I definitely enjoyed reading it. It's in the notes. He continues saying this fundamentally breaks the system of separation of powers and checks and balances that the framers created. Under unified government, congressional co-partisans have no incentive to check the president. Nope. Their electoral success is tied to his success and popularity. Under a divided government, Congressional opposition partisans have no incentive to work with the president. Their electoral success is tied to his failure and unpopularity. This is not a system of bargaining and compromise, but one of capitulation and stonewalling. And if you haven't seen that in the recent stuff going on in the media and in our lives, then party lines, we talk about the party lines all the time. They're not representing the people. I guarantee you that they are not representing their constituents. They are towing a party line. And why wouldn't they? There's no incentive to do otherwise. It, it, as Drutman says. So the other issue I have 
that I've always had and I've talked about multiple times, multiple times, so I'm not going to dig too far into it. Other than I, the, the second issue is that I feel like it causes this boogeyman voting behavior. Like, vote against the lesser of two evils. So I looked up boogeyman voting phenomenon just because I was curious if this was the thing. And I there's actually an... It looks like a documentary back in 2008 called Boogeyman, the Lee Atwater story. And I've, I, I'm not familiar with this person, and I haven't watched this documentary, but I think I probably might because as I was reading through it, I found it very interesting just because I did, had no knowledge of this before. But when I looked up Lesser of Two Evils, the onslaught of articles and past and present was I, I I started reading through some of them and I'm like there's too many they there's too many to choose some good ones I, I certainly have been preaching about the voting for the lesser two evils I'm not a fan I don't want to do it you know and the final thing that was kind of interesting to me that not interesting that I, I take exception to the two-party system is the history of bipartisanship. And the reason that I bring this up is because I found, and maybe it's, it, it's not inaccurate, but I found evidence that there's only been 26 documented instances in Congress since 1787 where there has been a bipartisan effort to solve a problem. Only 26 in like 250 years? Seriously? So this, the ultimate question that kept coming to mind as I was researching through this and when I had my original thought, like I'm fighting to make more parties the, the way that people think. Like at least a third party, right? Because as we came into the 2020 election, I for sure got lots of pressure from liberals to vote for Biden. And I didn't really get pressure from folks on the right, but I definitely had people who were had some genuinely curious inquiries as to whether I might possibly vote for Trump. They were definitely not as... You have to do it. What are you thinking? What's wrong with you? It was more like, have you given some thought to this? Um, I did not vote for either of those men. I, I definitely covered this before. But my question is, if it were possible that a third party could really rise into some level of power, would you have checked a Biden's box. If you voted for Biden, would you have checked that box had Trump not been on the ballot? Because we had four years of some serious, aggressive messaging about how evil, corrupt, like disgusting, ridiculous, stupid, uh, uncaring, unempathetic white supremacist like the, the the things that the messaging has been clear for the last four years 
Orange Man Evil. And if you didn't have such a clear boogeyman, such a clear villain laid out for you, would you have voted for Biden? Because I did not. Because I could not. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why I could not. But I just, there's, in good conscience, I could not vote for Biden. Just like I couldn't vote for Hillary. And in both cases, I voted for a third party. So, would you? Just ask yourself. You don't have to answer me. You don't have to answer anybody else. Just entertain the idea for yourself. If you voted for Biden, would you have done so? Had Trump, the evil orange man, not been on the ticket? Just something to think about. Y'all take it easy. We'll talk to you soon.